Well, the passage that Nicole just read, um, maybe one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, and uh, it's the, uh, the last reading of tonight's service. Thanks, Mary. And uh, I'll just corner up right here. Uh, it's the last reading in tonight's service, and it may be actually the most important reading because this reading uh, doesn't give us the details of what happened at Christmas. It tells us the meaning of what happened. Now, people debate that. Um, what is the true meaning of Christmas? Um, did you know that the true meaning of Christmas actually has its own Wikipedia article? Uh, apparently, it's a phrase that's been in use since the, about the middle of the 19th century. And, and here's what the article says. Uh, it says, in pop culture, overt religious references are mostly avoided and the, quote, true meaning is taken to be a sort of introspective and benevolent attitude. An early expression of this sentiment is found in the American magazine from 1889, which said, to give up one's very self, to think only of others, how to bring the greatest happiness to others, that is the true meaning of Christmas. In other words, in our culture, very frequently, the true meaning of Christmas doesn't have all that much to do with Jesus. Um, in fact, oftentimes people will insist that focusing too much on doctrines, things like the incarnation or the virgin birth or the atoning death of Jesus, people will insist that focusing on things like that uh, is too divisive and it actually leads us away from the true meaning of Christmas, not more deeply into it. So, very frequently, people will say, uh, rather than see the physical incarnation of Jesus Christ as God into this world as a literal physical reality, we should adopt a more enlightened view and see it more as a metaphor, a wonderful symbol of sacrificial love. Um, and uh, if we could all just imitate that wonderful example, then the world would be a better place. Now, I don't doubt that that's true, but that's not what this passage is telling us. This passage is making the most revolutionary countercultural claim that has ever been made in the history of the world, and you see it explicitly in verse 14. The Word became flesh. In other words, God became a human being, not just metaphorically, not just symbolically, but literally, actually, physically. And so Let's just say, for the sake of argument tonight, that it's true, that it actually happened. The question I want to ask is, so what? Why does it matter? Even if you don't believe it tonight, and I can't imagine that I know everything that everybody here tonight believes, even if you don't believe in it, what's actually at stake in the question? The only way to understand what's at stake in the question is to look at this passage. This is one of the best places to understand. If the incarnation really is true, if, if God really did become a human being, what does it mean? More than we can possibly see tonight, but let me offer you three thoughts from this passage. The incarnation of God does three things. It dignifies us with love, it confronts our darkness, and it transforms us with glory. Okay? First, it dignifies us with love. Uh, really, the only way that we can understand this passage is if we understand something about the world in which it was written. And to do that, you know, maybe I could just give you a little illustration. If you're Asian here tonight, you know that you have a culture, don't you? And if you're African American here tonight, you know you have a culture as well, don't you? But white people, a lot of times, don't understand that we have a culture. So just to make this really clear for us, we can, we can make it easy by asking a simple question to illustrate the difference. What time does an event start? 
I'm poking fun a little, but it, it makes the point. White people would say, well, an event starts at the exact time that's written on the invitation, not a moment sooner, not a moment later. Clock time. That's when an event starts. Other cultures say, oh, no, an event starts when, when everybody arrives. Not clock time, it's arrival time. Those are different cultural ways of relating to start time. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times white people don't see that their way of relating to that actually is a cultural way. White people will say, oh, no, 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 everybody else's way of relating to that is cultural. Our way is just normal. <laughs> now, obviously, start times, there's no right or wrong way. There's no true or false way. Those are cultural ways of relating to that, but it does illustrate the point. And the point is that very often um, things can be so intuitive and so natural to us that, that we can often be blind to the fact that we believe these things. They're, they're so intuitive that we don't even question them. To us, it's just normal. So one of the ways we see that is, is when we think about worldviews, all right? Now, um, a worldview is the way we understand reality. A worldview is the way we see the world. And unlike many of our cultural norms, worldviews actually can be further away from or closer to the truth about the way the world really is. In verse 1 of this passage, John, who wrote this gospel, says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, when he talks about the Word, he uses the Greek word logos. We get our word logic from that. Uh, logos in that world was a worldview. In that world, the logos was the divine, rational principle at the heart of the universe. Ancient people saw the world as being one harmonious, ordered reality that was all ordered around this one divine, rational principle. But here's the thing. The logos was rational. The logos was ordered, but the logos was impersonal. There was no person behind the universe. In that worldview, the universe was a highly rational, minutely ordered, but also coldly impersonal place. By the way, Eastern worldviews also see the world in a very similar way. So it's an easy way to understand this, it's kind of like the force from Star Wars. Um, do you remember how Obi-Wan Kenobi explained it to Luke Skywalker in the first movie? He said, the force is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds all the galaxy together. So very rational, very ordered, very powerful, but personal. Not, not personal, impersonal. Therefore, if you go back to the ancient world, in that worldview... It was perfectly natural. It made perfect sense to folks back then that some people would have been born to be aristocrats and other people would have been born to be slaves. Like white people relating to clock time, folks back then would have said, oh, it's normal. That's just the way the world is. It's because of the logos. It was because of their worldview. Now, the gospel comes into that worldview in this passage and it says, well, you're right when you say that the logos is divine and you're right when you say that the Logos is rational, but you haven't gone far enough if you think that the Logos is just a what, like the force. It's not a what, it's a who. And even more important than that, this who actually became a person. When John says the word became flesh, listen, we could unpack that for months, but let me give you one incredibly important implication of this for us. Do you know where the idea of universal love and dignity came from? Here. Do you know where the idea that 
every human being is worthy of being loved and cherished and treasured came from right here. We think that's normal. But why? The doctrine of the physical incarnation of God into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, friends, that was a seismic shift in the way the ancient world saw reality. Instead of being a rational but impersonal place, all of a sudden this comes along and says, no, the world, the universe, is a rational and deeply personal place. Never before did people see a personal God behind the structure of the universe. And never before did people, they they never would have thought that there was any kind of moral obligation on us to treat every single human being with universal love, dignity, respect, worth, and value. Not until they saw a God who did it himself. But here's what's most ironic about this. We think universal love and dignity for all people, we think that's normal. We don't even think about it. It's self-evident to us, kind of like white people with clock time. We just think that's normal. But over the last 150 years, there was another seismic shift in the way we see the universe. You know, up until the time of Jesus, ancient people saw the world as being rational and impersonal. For the next 1,800 years after the time of Jesus, people saw the world as being rational but personal. In the last 150 years since then, we now see, according to the modern secular worldview, we now see the universe as being irrational and impersonal. Do you understand the implications of that? It says there is no mind and therefore there is no person behind the universe. The universe and everything in it is the product of blind, random, irrational forces and causes. So, for instance, Richard Dawkins is a very famous scientist, very well-known atheist. He's written a number of books. In one of his books, he says this. He says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. The secular worldview says at the very heart of the structure of the universe, there is nothing but pitiless indifference. Okay, but if that's true, why do we feel morally obligated to treat every single human being in the world with universal love and dignity? Friends, if you're here tonight and you identify more with the secular worldview, and yet you affirm universal love and dignity for every human being, I want to invite you gently but firmly to consider the possibility that you can only do that by thinking less about the implications of your secular worldview. In other words, by being less rational. The incarnation of God dignifies us with love because it says that there is a God who created the universe. He's a person, and he came into this world as a person to dignify us with his love. And that leads to our second point. Not only does the incarnation of God dignify us with love, it confronts our darkness. Because here's the question, why did God come to earth? Was it just, you know, hey guys, I'm here, let's have a party? No. Over and over, this passage says that Jesus is the light of the world. Okay, now light can mean different things. Light, um, Light can mean truth. Light brings clarity. Light also means life. You can't have life without light. When John calls Jesus the light of the world, he means both, both clarity and truth and life, okay? Now, why does the light need to come into the world? Verse 5 tells us, because the world is in darkness. Jesus came as a light shining in darkness. Now, what does that mean? 
Is it just a, a wonderful metaphor, or is it speaking about some kind of ultimate reality? One of the things you learn as you read John's gospel is that over and over again, you see Jesus talking about darkness. Now, just like light, darkness can mean different things as well. One thing that darkness can represent is like an intellectual darkness. Um, for instance, it's a lack of truth. A lot of times people will look at Jesus and they'll see that, that Jesus work in this world was to address um, a lack of intellectual clarity, a lack of intellectual truth. In other words, hey, Jesus is one of the greatest moral teachers that the world has ever seen, maybe the greatest, but he's still just a human being. You don't need Jesus to be God in order to come and be a great teacher. In that view, it would say that our main problem as human beings is a lack of information. We need better information, more information, and we just need to do what this information tells us, and the world would be a better place. Intellectual darkness. But over and over again, whenever the Bible talks about darkness, whenever Jesus talks about darkness, it's never just intellectual darkness. It's always also moral and spiritual darkness. In other words, it's never just a lack of truth. It's also a lack of spiritual life. So for instance, if you look at the third paragraph in this reading, it says, he was in the world, but the world did not know him. Okay, so that's the intellectual darkness, lack of clarity about who Jesus is. But then right after that, it says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That is not just intellectual darkness. That is rejection of the God who made the universe. It's not just intellectual darkness. It's moral and spiritual darkness. Friends, this is telling us that inside every single one of us, there is not just intellectual darkness. There is a moral and spiritual darkness. There is an evil inside every single one of us. And it is so pervasive and so powerful that not only does it blind us to its very presence, we actually don't have the power to overcome that darkness in and of ourselves. Now, I understand, right as I say that, that sounds incredibly offensive in our culture. But I want you to consider something with me. It's really easy to see evil in the world, isn't it? I mean, just as we were having our service tonight, if you heard that little alarm going off. That was an amber alert. There's a child missing out there somewhere. It's really easy to see evil in the world. It's constantly confronting us everywhere. You can't even come to church on Christmas Eve without being confronted with the evil in the world. It's really easy to see evil in the world, but it's really hard to see it in ourselves. Why is that? Think about it. The hardest word to hear, the most painful, most difficult word to hear is not the lie that you can deny. I mean, the world will bring all kinds of bad words about you all the time, won't it? People will criticize you. People will trash talk you. What's the saying? Haters gonna hate. People will, people will lie about you all the time, but friends, the hardest word to hear is not the lie that you can deny. It's the truth you can't bear to face. Unless we face the truth about ourselves, unless we face not just the intellectual darkness, but the moral, spiritual darkness inside of ourselves, it will eat us up. It will destroy us. So, for instance, um, right at the end of World War II, the very first concentration camp that the Allies discovered was in a little um, German town called Ordruf. And uh, when the Allied soldiers arrived in the town, they saw 2,000 bodies stacked and waiting to be incinerated. Now, the German soldiers had fled uh, because they didn't want to be captured, but they, um, they fled before they had a chance to finish um, destroying the evidence, as it were. A few hours later, General George Patton himself, one of the greatest generals in, in the, in, 
of the Allies, he showed up himself. Now, George Patton's nickname was Old Blood and Guts. This was a man who was no stranger to goriness, and yet George Patton had not been there more than one hour before he vomited. He went into the town of Ordriff, and he talked to the mayor and to the townspeople that were living there in the village. And of course, nobody knew anything. Even though the soldiers would come into the town regularly to drink and to brag about what was going on. And so George Patton told the mayor and his wife and the townspeople to come back to Ordriff the next day and dig graves for all the bodies, which they did. And that night, after they had dug those graves, the mayor and his wife went home and they hanged themselves. And they left a note. And the note said, we didn't know, but we knew. The hardest word to hear is not the lie that we can deny. It's the truth about ourselves that we can't bear to face. We want to think about ourselves as good people who just need a little help. But the incarnation of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into our lives and it confronts our darkness. It says, no, you are not just good people who need a little help. You are spiritually dead people who need a radical intervention. The incarnation is that intervention in this world because Jesus Christ is the word of God who came into this world as a light to confront our darkness, to help us to face the truth about ourselves, but also to rescue us from the darkness that's inside of ourselves. And that leads to our last point. The incarnation of God dignifies us with love. It also confronts our darkness. But finally, the incarnation of God transforms us with glory. Because here's the real question. How in the world does Jesus do that? It says at the end, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, that word dwelt literally is this word tabernacle, which is a really weird, strange word for us in our culture. It doesn't really mean anything to us. Tabernacle, what's that? Tabernacle uh, is a word. When John uses that word, he's actually pointing us back to the book of Exodus and to the story of Moses and the tabernacle. Because back in the book of Exodus, you find out that when God, uh, when Moses, that is, was on the mountain with God, he said to God, God, show me your glory. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 33. God, show me your glory. God said, Moses, I can't. If I did, it would kill you. But tell you what, I want you to build a tent. It's called the tabernacle. Build the tabernacle, Moses. In the tabernacle, I will give you my glory. It will be in the tabernacle. So the tabernacle... It was the place of God's glorious presence. In, in many ways, it, I think it's very possible to say that the one single overarching story of the whole Bible is all about God's passionate desire to dwell with his people, to be with us. That's what the whole Bible is about. The tabernacle was the place of God's glorious presence in this world, but it could only be that if it was also the place of sacrifice. Why? Remember a moment ago, we were just talking about the darkness that's in our hearts. Not only do we fail to recognize God, intellectual darkness, we also reject God, moral and spiritual darkness. Because every time we look for something other than God to make us happy, every time we look for something other than God to give our lives meaning and worth and value and significance, every time we look to something other than God to, to, to get a sense of being cherished and worth and value in this world. Every time we do that, and we all do that, we are actually rejecting God. Because what is the highest value in our culture? 
I would suggest the highest value in our Western culture is everyone having the freedom to define themselves. To us, that's normal. We don't even think about that. It's like second nature. It seems so intuitive to us. Everybody should have the freedom to define themselves. So how do we say it? It's like no one, uh, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you. The only thing that matters is what you think about yourselves. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? Friends, I applaud and affirm the impulse not to let the world's bad words define you. By the way, so does the Bible. But the world's bad words should not define you. But what should define you supremely is what God says about you. But you notice in that statement we've completely taken God out of the equation. It doesn't matter what the world says. It matters what I say. Where is God in that? What is the highest value in our culture? Freedom to define yourself. That means that seeking to define yourself is seeking your own glory, not God's. It's a rejection of God. Now think about this with me. If somebody hurts you, if somebody rejects you, how does that make you feel? You know that when that happens, that creates a gap between you and that person. And, and unless something happens to fill that gap, to bridge that chasm, you can't be reconciled with that person. Now, if that's true with another human being, how much more so would that be true with God? That's why God said, Moses, build the tabernacle, because the tabernacle is, is the place of God's glorious presence. But it's not just the place of his presence. The only way it can be the place of God's presence is if it's also the place of sacrifice, the place where the gap gets closed. And do you see now? Jesus is the true tabernacle. Because Jesus is not just the true place of God's presence, he's also the ultimate sacrifice. Because on the cross, Jesus closed the gap. When he was crucified, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the physical incarnation of God in this world was rejected, not just by the people who put him there, not even just by you or by me. The Son of God was rejected by the Father who sent him. Jesus paid the price for our gap so that we could have the love of God in our life. Because on the cross, Jesus was plunged into infinite cosmic darkness in order that he could heal our darkness and fill us with his light. And over and over again in the Gospel of John, we're told that, that the place you see God's glory most fully and most truly is on the cross of Jesus Christ. When you see Jesus on the cross... You are beholding the glory that Moses wasn't allowed to see. Now, that leads to a question. How in the world can that be true? What, how is a naked, bleeding, dying man on a cross, how is that glorious? Here's how. Remember, at the very end, you remember what it said? We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in John's gospel, glory always points to the cross. How is the glory? the glory of God shown to us in the cross because it's full of grace and truth. Did you notice that it said that? The cross of Jesus Christ shows us the glory of God because the cross shows us both grace and truth. How does it do that? Remember what we saw about the light. Light brings truth. It brings clarity. Friends, the cross is the ultimate place of truth because the cross shows us the truth about ourselves that we're so lost and so alienated from God that there's this unbridgeable chasm between us and God. Now that is a hard truth to face. How in the world are you going to face a truth like that? 
The only way is because the cross is also the ultimate place of grace. That means that the truth about your sin is not the final word on you. The grace of God's love is the final word. The cross gives you both truth and grace. The truth that you're so lost that you need a Savior to die for you, but the grace that you're so loved, you've got a Savior who died for you. You put those two things together, the grace and the truth, do you realize what that does for you? The truth makes it possible for you to see your sin, to see the darkness. The grace makes it safe. And isn't that what we're looking for? At the end of the day, I mean, we're all looking for glory, aren't we? We're all looking for love and identity and worth and value and meaning and significance. We're all looking, really, we're looking for the ultimate good word, the benediction of God, the true pronouncement of God that rests upon each and every single one of us and says, you are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. Friends, the the gospel, Jesus Christ is the good word, God's good word that you're longing for. And when you have that, do you know what that does for you? If you have that, it doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't even matter what what the truth says about you, the truth of your own evil and sin and darkness in your own life. None of that matters. What matters ultimately is what God says about you. 400 years ago, an old English pastor named William Gurnall put it like this, and I think it's perfect. He said, if you have God's good word, you do not have to fear the world's bad words. Friends, the truth of the cross makes it possible to see your sin and darkness but the grace makes it safe. Do you have that in your life now? The incarnation of God and only the incarnation of God in this world, it's the only thing that will give it to you. It dignifies us with love. It confronts our darkness. And if you let it, it will transform you with glory. Have you let it? Will you let it? Let's pray.